presents Midnight Chats. Hi, I'm Nick. I'm Rory. And I'm Jay. And this is Midnight Chats, an Octivigant companion show where we sit down with your favorite paranormal authors, investigators, and researchers and have a chat about their work, the phenomenon, and all the strangeness in between. On this episode, we are joined by esoteric philosopher, author, and, well, personal literary hero, Gary Lockman. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I am thrilled that we finally got Lockman on the show. Yes. Uh, it was a long time coming, and I, I am not disappointed in the least. No, no, me neither. It was uh, it was a blast chatting with him. He's, as expected, uh, just ludicrously smart and I could pull information seemingly out of nowhere. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I had a great time. We uh, talked quite a bit about his book, Dreaming Ahead of Time. Uh, we talked about the coming of Newtonian time and how time is getting messed up in the modern day due to technology. It was just fascinating. We talked about um, iconic figures from history, drunk dialing you at the wee hours of the morning. Yes, that's right. And you will get yeah. to hear Lockman do a, an Aleister Crowley impression, which yes. is fantastic. Yes. <laughs> it's very fun. All right, actually. can we just let him listen to it? Let's yeah. do it. Let's go. <laughs> with Gary Lockman. Gary, thank you so much for giving us some of your time this evening. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. So getting right into it, our first question is one that we like to ask all of our guests as we are a book club, which is what are you reading and what sort of books do you tend to gravitate towards? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I usually have about two or three books going on at the same time. Um, there's different categories. There's the morning book, the book I'm reading when I have my coffee and slice of toast okay uh, in the morning and then there's whatever i'm reading uh what i'm researching mm -hmm. yeah so i spend um afternoons at the british library here in london which is this fantastic uh, research facility and um and then there's uh just fun reading or you know reading entertainment so i've got into reading um sort of crime novels which is something i never really got into that much i mean class the classic ones I, I I read and all that as a Sherlock Holmes fan and all that sort of thing. But I've, I've been reading. Um, there's a um, I think they came out of yeah I think they, they, they no they came out of London. There's there's a uh, sort of publishing line called Hard Case Crime, and they they republish all this kind of pulpy uh, crime fiction from the 50s and 60s and also sort of more recent stuff that's along those lines. So, I mean, I've, I've, this is something I never was interested in before, but I think I've, I've exhausted the other genres that I was interested in. So I've just, I've, so this is, I, I, there's, um, I, I'm trying to, I don't remember which book it's in, but in one of Nietzsche's early books, um, this aphoristic books, he has a, an aphorism. It's like a short paragraph about a topic and um, the Don Juan of knowledge, where it's like you, you know, you go after all the stuff that you're really interested in first and then, but you use all that up and then you go after the stuff that you weren't interested in before. <laughs> because That's what's left. So, and I, I, I'm sort of doing that, but no, it's interesting. It's, uh, it's, um, yeah. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing at the moment. 
That's very cool. And, uh, you know, I, hopefully we can, we can all endeavor to keep learning as we grow older. And maybe by the time I'm in my 90s, I'll actually figure out how to do my taxes. Huh. There you go. Absolutely. I wouldn't count Something on that, Something to look though. forward to. Yeah. Hey. All right. So getting into uh, your work, we read Dreaming Ahead of Time. Uh, earlier on the show, we read Secret Teachers of the Western World, and we, we loved both books. Speaking about Dreaming Ahead of Time, one of the ideas in there that we fixated on quite heavily is the difference between the medium and the message when it comes to the physiological elements of dreaming versus the dreams themselves. So kind of taking that a step further, do you think that the same could be suggested regarding other paranormal phenomenon? Uh, for example, are we too concerned with the supposed technology of, say, UFOs and not concerned enough about the message their manifestation might represent? Uh, well, I guess that that's that's a question that um, has come up. I mean, I'm 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 not a ufologist, but um, I have read some about it. But I think that's a question. You know, the difference between sort of the nuts and bolts, um, hard. You know, it's they they are actual, you know, uh, flying vehicles of some kind. Or against, I guess maybe the the sort of way of looking at it that Jung um, kind of introduced in the late 50s when he did that little book of his ufos uh a modern myth of things seen in the sky and they're basically mandalas from outer space um uh, for Jung. so they somehow have to do with projections from the human con you know human consciousness and i guess jacques valet went sort of in that direction in the sense that you know what we see in contemporary times as these nuts and bolts you know saucers um Earth versus the flying saucers, flying saucers over Hollywood and things like that. Yeah. Um, uh, actually have a history in the sense of, you know, appearances of spirits and sort of elves and, you know, um, all this. So they, uh, other, you know, there's much earlier accounts of things seen in the sky, you know, mm -hmm. Ezekiel's, you know, wheels and things of that sort and so on and so on. So, um yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the point I'm trying to make is where you can you can chart the physiological, you know, um, processes that are going on when we're dreaming, um, but it doesn't, and those, that, that's important to know. But it 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 doesn't account for or exhaust um, the dream itself. It doesn't explain the dream, you know, because you might have the similar physiological processes going on and and something else happening <laughs> so it's like you know why why that there there and then so i mean i, I so I, I would say you know it's um but I, I don't know in terms of broad i mean ufo i mean they you know i said that, that that's i should say maybe that's stretching okay you know the uh, now no i'm just thinking the sense because uh, that's something that's initially that that's we'd be the, the first kind of a reports about them were you know these are actually things flying in the sky like boeing seven seven forty sevens you know except they're faster and you know they're round um and um i mean dreams start out being something that's not that there's a wonderful quote that i uh from jb Priestley, um who's an english writer who isn't as read uh, as he should be anymore but he was he was enormously popular in the 20th century and he was very interested in dreams, but he's um, paraphrasing him. But he says, you know, I had the most powerful, you know, moving, you know, experience in a dream. And I have less evidence for it than I have for, you know, a broken nail or, or a cold. Hmm. So, you know, the sort of the meaning content of sort of dreaming experience 
um, can't be completely accounted for in, in the, you know, the, the, the physical, you know, um, accompaniment to it. It, it. it may be that which provides it happening, just like, you know, if you think of a television, there's a television set in this, at least in the old days when I was a kid, there was all the tubes and the stuff <laughs> yeah, yeah. in the back. And uh, th that, those things go on whatever is on the TV, right? So they in themselves can't account for whether you're watching, you know, some, you know, rather banal soap opera or whether you're watching, you know, high drama or something like that. So the, whatever is on the television, the same bulbs and stuff will be lighting up or the equivalent today in whatever it is, you know, the tech that that we, we think of today. So I, I, I think it's a distinction that, you know, is important to recognize. Absolutely. And I mean, one thing that uh, I know occurred to me when reading your book is you, there's obviously uh, in that book a, an extended portion where you go over sort of the history of dream interpretation and how important it was culturally. And I it occurred to me for the first time of how uh, absolutely that's not true in the modern day. Uh, you know, one of the common things you hear is, oh, it was just a dream. Don't worry about it. Uh, and it seems like for most of human history, it was the exact opposite. It was a dream. You need to worry about it a lot. Mm -hmm. No, this is true. I mean, this is common, you know, um, with many things that in an earlier time um, were taken seriously and and had a, um, you know, significant place in in the culture. Um, yeah, it's just a dream or it's just your imagination kind of thing or it's in your dreams. Uh, uh, so to so there's the, there's the underlying uh Ex commonly accepted notion that dreams have hard to do with unreality and and and, and of course you know we, we we all have the wonderful feeling from waking up from some you know rather uh unpleasant dream and realizing oh my god <laughs> but that was um oh my my you know all my teeth have not all fallen out or whatever it is some you know the horrible thing that happens in the dream and you wake up and you're you're happy that it isn't the case so mm, yeah um th that that distinction is is important but you know but the whole idea that you know dreams or um i think it's a, it's a german expression you know uh traumens in schäumen you know uh, dreams or or foam they're like kind of bubbles and you know stuff that's kind of given off uh, but it's they're not particularly you know anything important but um i mean i i think that's probably true about quite a few dreams but i think there's different levels and 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 um Whatever you want to call it, you know, uh, of of significance, you know, there's a uh, and there's different, like you know, we are very sort of shallow, sort of you just sort of you're not sleeping very very well, you're not sort of getting down into the deeper levels where you're you're, you're kind of still thinking while you're while you're asleep in a way, and that that's it's kind of shuffling around of you know all your worries and concerns, but then at, at other levels you, you we we have to speak in this metaphoric language, you know, about levels and depth and all that because mm -hmm. we. We only we only have a language about the outer world to try and talk about the inner world, and even that, even saying calling it the inner world, <laughs> that's the only way we can talk about it. But you know, if you took up my head, you wouldn't see any of this at all, right? Um, but um, uh, it, it's um, that 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 kind of interiority that, uh, that that has its own meaning and its own significance that um, gives the, the deeper dreams, you know, that reach into sort of. Um, more profound levels of our being. This the, the power that, that that when we come out of them, we, we have a feeling that oh, you know, I've actually had some kind of experience here. Absolutely, and uh, I mean, I could say when we were reading the book, I actually did 
experiment recording some of my own dreams, as you suggested in the book. And it is interesting how often elements from the dream kind of seem to crop up in the world around you. Uh, I didn't have anything quite as clear as some of the experiences you you detail in the book, but it was small things like a random having a dream about Japan and then randomly encountering a lengthy passage in a book about Japan when I didn't expect to encounter anything about Japan in that particular book. Hmm. Uh, so it, it is there is definitely something there. Hmm. Now, moving into another concept in the book that uh, fascinated us greatly. So in there, you go over the history of how our perception of time uh, changed with the coming of Newton and his mathematically based TikTok time. Now, with that in mind, uh, it got us thinking about how technology kind of shapes our fundamental perceptions of reality, extending into uh, no, the present and to the future. Do you see any current technologies or maybe emergent trends which might again evolve or disturb our concept of time? Well, I, I'm 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 not the best one to ask about the cutting edge of of tech and technology. <laughs> I'm 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 one of these horrible old humanists who's you know dragging my heels uh, against that. And of course, I'm recognize the you know the value and the miracle of being able to do this you know without mm -hmm. this tech we wouldn't be able to do this so i mean i appreciate all that sort of stuff but i i would say when you talk about technology and time a um someone who i i think i just name check him in in that book dreaming ahead of time but in some of my other books well secret teachers i, I certainly talk about him is this uh the german swiss philosopher jean gebser and uh, he's not, he's not that well known. Um, he's a very interesting character. Um, he died in the early 70s. He was born in like 1905. And he grew up by, I'm not sure if it's Munich, but so in Germany, he may have been Munich, in Germany during the rise of National Socialism. So he experienced all that. And he had, he had actually quite a, what do you want to call it, kind of dramatic life because uh, he, he escaped that and then he went to spain and then he would gotten in it was in spain when franco you know was happening and he, he just managed to get out um across the border before you know uh franco would close all the borders and that sort of thing and then he was in paris just before um the germans walked in so he was one of these you know from our perspective kind of wonderfully colorful adventurous sort of european intellectuals during that time um, but he had this whole idea of what he called the, the these different structures of consciousness and um, how um, throughout human history, consciousness has, he didn't like the word evolved because he thought that was peculiar to our own structure of consciousness. He, he preferred the term mutates. So in any case, it transforms. It has certain sort of fundamental bottom line kind of characteristics that over time um, change. Um, but one of the things he talked about our particular time, which he he said we are we 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 are experiencing the breakdown of the mental rational structure of consciousness. So uh, so he charts a kind of narrative a trajectory from a kind of much more embedded mythical archaic kind of consciousness to a magical one to a mythic one, just before the rise of you know rational inquiry in Greece or uh, if you. Um, Go along with Carl Jaspers, who talked about the axial age. So, 500 BC or so, there's a shift um, in in the uh, Ionian, you know, uh, Greece and 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 uh, Asia Minor, where um, suddenly this is the beginning of what you know turned into philosophy and later science, uh, and that's been the dominant 
structure of consciousness, but it's, he would say maybe perhaps since the Renaissance has been breaking down. And I think he, he died just on the cusp of things like deconstructionism and postmodernism and other things like that, sort of becoming, you know, um, the intellectual flavors of the month. And th to me, they're, they're great evidence of, the, of this breakdown. But in, in homely kind of everyday uh, phenomena, um, he, he said part of his breakdown entailed what he called the eruption of time, not not it, 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 not eruption in the sense of a volcano, uh, a volcano erupting, but erupt in the sense of interrupt. It's kind of break breaking into, and he had this sense that time would become more and more a factor in everyday life. And if you think um, when he was alive, or he, as I said, died in the early 70s, and this was when I was a, you know, a teenager, if I wanted to watch something on television, I had to be at a certain place at a certain time in order to watch it. Nowadays, you can be anywhere, anytime, you can watch whatever you want. Time has, you know, changed for us. It, it isn't the same kind of thing. And I, and I, I think in many ways, if you, if, when you realize those sort of relatively that obviously that you know depends on the tech the tech enables us to do that but maybe leads back you know to the question you were talking about earlier but when you notice these smaller kinds of shifts and things rather than some grand big you know usually people think about change in consciousness as a big neon sign comes up over the horizon and suddenly <laughs> yeah. it's new stage in consciousness there's no it's like you notice things are changing around you and you think oh you know um, it, it is, it's, it is very different. Um, so, but that, I, 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 it just struck me that that sort of thing, or I mean, it, when I first wrote about it, it was TiVo, but I, 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 that's probably obsolete now, but the whole idea that, you know, whatever's on TV, you could play it when, where you wanted it and all that. So went from being in 50 years, it went from being, you had to be someplace at a certain place in time on, on the Cartesian bridge, you had to be there if you wanted to watch that. Now it's like, that's all gone. You don't need that anymore. You know, it's it's interesting just because talking with uh, my coworkers and things like that, with the coming of the COVID lockdowns, a lot of us were sent home to work from home. And now mm. that we've been working from home, uh, the whole idea of going back to the office is a very hard pill to swallow because of not wanting to have to spend the time in the commute and being as, I guess, uh, captured by your clock in and clock out date times. So with that in mind, it almost seems like uh, there is an accelerating trend of us, of people kind of subconsciously bucking the rule of time, trying to hmm. uh, make it work for them instead of in obeying whatever is the schedule. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's a, another manifestation of this. So it's a, it's a whole different relationship to to time. So, um, um, I mean, Gepser top of my head i mean I, he, he probably went into some detail about what he would thought would have how it, that would have manifested and I, I don't have that on ready recall but just the general sense that oh yes you know it's it, it struck me like yeah and of course that's another that's a whole that i mean and even this now you know so we're communicating over this other other dimension <laughs> yeah. whatever you want to call it the commuter cyberspace whatever it is that world we're communicating over that and it's real time for us, but you're going to turn this into some content that's going to be released into the stream. Mm -hmm. The Heraclitian, you know, you can't, you can't, you 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 can't watch the same, you know, post twice or whatever it is, you know, sort of thing. Uh, um, 
you know, and 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 that that's a whole other thing too. It's just this this notion, this this constant, you know, stream of 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 content. I guess I don't know what you want to call it. You know, again, it was that wasn't the case. You know, fifty years ago, you didn't have any any anything. I mean, the strangest thing fifty years ago was like FM radio or something. You know, when it yeah. really was FM. You know, um, before it just turned into just whatever, like what whatever it is now. So. And now they have satellite radio and XM radio and probably stuff that I'm not even aware of now at this point. Well, with podcasts, radio is every literally everywhere and on every platform. It's just another kind of streaming. Yep. You know? Yeah. All right. Well, moving into our next question, uh, this kind of harkens more back to secret teachers, but it applies to some of the individuals you were talking about and dreaming ahead of time. So one of the difficulties we've often encountered when exploring esoteric topics or occult topics is the myths that tend to form around some of the larger than life figures such as like Crowley and Blavatsky, which can make it difficult to parse out what is meant to be read as literal truth from metaphor or exaggeration. Is that an issue that you've had when attempting to write biographies about these individuals? Oh, well, you know, I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, they themselves went out of their way in, 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 in their own individual styles to cloud their past um although at the same time i mean crowley is a funny character because he claimed to turn himself invisible but he did everything he could to draw attention to himself at the same time so i mean that's like uh, you know <laughs> yeah so i mean um crowley he's much in, in some ways he's well he in, in many and yes he's, he's much more his life is much more documented um because and because he went out of his way to make sure everybody knew about him but he also invented things and he adopted different identities and you know so that's what makes him a colorful character and all that blavatsky there's a long stretch you know um when she runs away from this unconsummated marriage when she's in her teens late teens you know with the the nikifor blavatsky who's the governor of you know this this land down in georgia and that sort of thing and then she goes on her years of travel and her life becomes documented 1919 excuse me 1873 when she turns up in new york uh, as an immigrant coming over on an immigrant you know um ocean liner um from europe um, and she goes through the you know immigration process and she's down in in um, lower manhattan you know living in a woman's sort of um boarding house and you know that's that's when she be she becomes in the new i mean she has you know there's reports of her earlier than that but that's when sort of we, we can start to actually see her historically so uh and and then you have you know um stories that accrete around these you know so i mean the task of i guess i would say the task of the responsible biographers to have to sort through all that sort of stuff uh, and some stuff you can't, you, you don't know. Uh, I mean, one of the things I uh, I, I referred well, some a theme or an idea or uh, an aim I referred to at the beginning of Blavatsky um, biography is there's um, well, there was uh, an American historian named Jacques Barzin, this remarkable character who died a few years back, but he lived in like in, he was like he died he was like 104 or something like that. He was just remarkable, but. Um, he said this wonderful thing it's a difficult task to uh teach the educated and uh one of the things he also said was that um when you have these figures 
well-known, you know, figures, they they often, like you say, they have this myth, myth, myth that sort of accretes around them. And it, it, it's not the same thing as you have somebody who's unknown and you have to introduce them to everybody. You have to sort of take the figure that everyone thinks they know already and show that, well, actually, that's not the case. That's not the case. This mm-hmm. is, you know, there's, 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 so in a way, I, I thought that's what I was doing with Blavatsky. And um, I mean, I, I'd known more about Crowley when I did the book because I'd been interested in him. And I, 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 I it was a Crowleyite in my early 20s when I was living in New York um, and then for a while in, in California. And I've written about this in some of my books. Um, and, um, you know, he's one of these characters that if you're at a certain age, he's fascinating. And then I outgrew him, but I didn't, I never really got into Blavatsky. And so, and, but I, I was one of these people who thought, well, I kind of know what she's about and you know, all this sort of thing. And then you look and say, actually, no, she's much more interesting than I, I thought she was. And I mean, she's a remarkable, I mean, she's, she's actually a 19th century free thinker more than anything else I would say, you know, and remarkable. I thought that the feminists never grabbed hold of her um uh, and there's so much of her to grab hold of excuse me i had to make that stupid joke uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know in the sense that she was doing things in the 19th century that men weren't doing and she and she didn't give a hoot you know she was you know and she was like this incredibly flamboyant creative you know the transgressive kind of character but i guess the occult saying or the, the the idea that she had been outed as a fraud which actually it's still iffy. I mean, all that. If, if, if you, I think, if you really are honest and you look, it's kind of iffy because the the PRS, the Society, uh, or the PSR, the Society for Psychological Research, that uh, Richard Hodson, who did the investigation in the eighteen eighties uh, in India, uh, which Blavatsky wasn't even around, so he never met and talked with her. I mean, that that was later rescinded by the society. They said, you know. Um, whatever you might think of Blavatsky, the Hodgson report is actually unreliable. And they, they said so for a variety of different reasons for that. Um, so that doesn't necessarily exonerate her, but the the main body of evidence that's supposed to undermine her as a fraud has, has been, if not discredited, it actually has had some doubt shed upon it by the very society that, you know, um, uh, you know, had it done in the first place. If I had to personally speculate on why Blavatsky um, hasn't had a bigger presence in like the feminist movement, I would guess it's because uh, spirituality and uh, quote unquote magic being part of feminism didn't really come about until the 1970s. For so long, it was such a strictly political movement and there was a lot Mm. of there was a lot of ideas around we need to be respectable, we need to be in many ways palatable and acceptable to mainstream society or we're not going to make progress. There's also just the the, the blunt fact that Western feminism looks down on Eastern European women. They're very there's a very de- narrow definition mm-hmm. of what an acceptable feminist mm-hmm. icon looked like for a very long time. And by the time those rules and respectability politics got less rigid, like her, she'd been relegated to like kind of the fringe occult society, like mainstream feminists don't know who she is anymore. Like her moment in the sun by the time, by the time she became an acceptable person to be a feminist icon, nobody remembered who she was. Yeah. Well, they probably also never forgave her 
for Annie Besant, you know, who was the match girl and the suffragette and went to jail because she had, you know, wrote a book about, you know, Planned Parenthood, contraception with Charles Bradlaugh and all that. And then she 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 was she was given the secret doctrine to review um for the Paul Mall Gazette by W.T. Steed, who's actually one of the fatalities on the the uh Titanic. Oh my God. Uh, and and uh when she went to meet Blavatsky to interview her, she basically converted. Ah uh, uh, Blavatsky won her over and she, you know, gave up her previous you know, career. She was a Fabian. She had a she had a, an affair with Bernard Shaw. You know, she was in that whole socialist Fabian progressive world, and then she jumped ship, um, and became a Theosophist. And then she was the head of the Theosophical Society uh, after Blavatsky died. Yeah. So they might then they may they may be as this horrible influence on, you know, because if 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 you know, I mean, the early the early suffragette movement and Annie Besant was like one of the you know the the you know the main uh, figures then. And that's that's entirely possible because the suffragettes yeah. were also very heavily influenced by American Christianity. That's part of mm. reason why they got so tangled up in the temperance movement mm. for mm. a long time. So that's entirely possible that um, that's part of what got her kind of kicked off the island, so to speak. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Well, in any case, one uh, day, one day. That's fascinating. Now, uh, going in, kind of building upon which something that you just said a little while ago uh, regarding some of the accusations of fraud surrounding Madame Blavatsky. Uh, it's no surprise looking into many of the philosophers and occultists that have been there historically. There are always claims of fraud or deception, and some of them seem to be authentic. I'm thinking of some instances where Crowley seemed to be manufacturing certain ritual effects or things like that um mm. does that impact impact how much stock you put in their work or to borrow some ideas from tim o'brien does the story truth trump the happening truth well i mean you know I, again it, it all depends you know um i have my own issues with crowley um i mean not the generic ones of whether he's a fraud or not i just think his whole philosophy was basically a kind of adolescent way of looking at the world completely yeah. fair um, yeah. and so uh but this magic work does it ever work well i my definition of magic is an induced synchronicity okay um that's and i am a firm believer in synchronicity because i've uh, you know, we were talking about dreaming ahead of time it's a book about dreams of precognitive dreams dreams of the future but it's also about my experience of synchronicity and there's quite a few of them um which have led me to the fact that the, these as as a phenomenologist i believe these things happen i i I, don't, I can't explain them i i'm not convinced by any all the quantum speak that you know is supposed to explain them and all this sort of thing but they they seem to be a feature of the world that that I inhabit, um, and, and so magic. When you want, I mean, they seem to happen of their own accord. You know, there's some there's some uh, parallel between something that's going on in your head, again metaphorically, and something in the outer world seem to line up in such a way that it seems indubitable that this hasn't been arranged. You know, there's some intelligence that knows what you're thinking about and here it's it's telling you in such a way that you can't doubt that and i know this is what crazy people uh say but i think this is you know and i shouldn't even say crazy people that's that's so you know um incorrect these days but um that that's uh, but 
magic is somehow making that happen. You know, uh, so given that I accept synchronicities, I'm led to think, well, I, 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 I see no reason to categorically deny the possibility of some kind of willed synchronicity. I, I think someone like Crowley, I think he he knew it was something like that. He knew if he threw himself into these states, you know, these wild ecstatic states that he would get into through drugs and sex and ritual magic and all this other stuff, something would happen. You know, it was hit or miss. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And um, I mean, I I, I, I I don't know what exact uh, examples of fraud. I mean, uh, with Crowley, I, I know, you know, Blavatsky was, you know, uh, this disgruntled friend of hers who uh, the, the column um, who were, you know, um, uh, she gave them work in India and they, they wrote all these, you know, rather nasty letters to the the. Christian missionary journal at the time and claiming that, oh, she faked it and Kudhumi and, you know, Moira, they're just, you know, paper mache heads and things. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, that, that all makes sense, you know, but then again, I, you know, if you look at the whole, the account of earlier account where she's with Sinit in, in um, India, and there's the whole story of the teacup um, where they're out, you know, having a picnic uh, and they're missing a teacup and she's you know they importune her and impress upon her oh please you know matt Vlasky, can't you you know materialize a teacup for us so we have enough for the picnic and oh she doesn't really want to uh okay but then you know she she, she does and then they discover it in the soil under a tree and and it's not only just in the soil under a tree it's in between all these uh, at least, at least this, these are the accounts. I wasn't there, and it's you know no eyewitnesses anymore. But you know the roots of the tree are uh, uh, you know cradling this thing. So the teacup is inside the roots of this tree. So it's sort of like, okay, you could possibly have, and it's all reason to think, as you say, circumstantial evidence that suggests it would have been nearly impossible for someone to known in advance that this is where they would have asked this to happen and they even like took a different turning at one point and all that but then again you know how could you possibly have managed to get this thing inside where it would have been you know clustered inside these trees and all this kind of stuff so i mean that's you know i mean again i'm 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 not saying it absolutely happened but i'm saying from the accounts i've read about it i unless people are lying which is always possible but you know in which most of us or many of us would say that well, it must be something like that you know how could this have taken place um so but you know um but and then she later said that she didn't she she, she didn't want to make manifestations she didn't want to produce phenomena you know it, it was always misinterpreted and all that um so i mean you know i mean but this is something that's common throughout the history of most magicians you know there's a there's there's the mountebank and side of it cogliastro i guess is the one of the classic examples and he's usually Usually portrayed as just a complete freight fake and fraud and all that. But again, you know, from what I've read about him from different sources, there was a really serious side to him. He took he took this Egyptian Freemasonry that he developed as a very serious kind of what we would call the spiritual pursuit in some way. Um so I, I you know, I half think that we never know for sure about these things, and that, that that's purposive in some way. That you know, here's you know, here I am. I think there's some purpose of intelligence behind all these kinds of things, arranging for these things to happen, 
to keep us on our toes, but we never have enough. Well, it's just like William James said, you know, you never have enough evidence. There's never enough evidence to to convince the skeptic, um, but there's always enough to encourage the, <laughs> the believer, as it were. You know, so it's like, uh, so I mean, I you know, I'm I mean, I I know from my own experience writing about in the book, I've I've been recording precognitive dreams, dreams and bits and pieces of the future turn up, um, for more than forty years. So um, phenomenologically, in my experience of the world, these things happen. It's fascinating. And, and it does make me wonder, uh, you know, I, the whole idea of it is induced synchronicity, that being a definition of magic. If the if for any fraud does occur with any of these individuals, if that is almost I, I don't want to say necessary, but an aid in actually generating magic, like you create the proper set dressing, you create the proper mental state and you create belief in other people. And all of that comes together to sort of shift the odds, as it were, towards that synchronicity. Yeah, I mean that's the, I mean that's what I understand aspects of chaos magic are about. You create the, you know, there's certain flows, certain currents of you know happening. We can say you know, and you know, sort of like bumping. You can think of it as kind of current going on, things bumping into each other. And if you can somehow get in that flow, and you can you can touch something, it's it's sort of like chaos. Uh, this chaos magic and chaos theory, you know the initial conditions you know the importance of initial conditions so if you touch some little thing at some little point down the line it may arrive in something else so uh yeah i mean but that that's all that that you know glamour and there's all that about that that side of magic too creating an atmosphere creating an effect um which stage magic or prestidigitation that that that, that's what that is all about but uh you know I guess that's the age-old question. Does it ever, you know, cross the line into like, or actually, and I'm, I'm saying again, because I accept synchronicities, I, I, I have to accept the possibility that it can happen. Whether in all the accounts it did actually happen, I don't know. Have I, have I myself experienced willfully induced, you know, synchronistic events? No, I can't say that. What I can say is I've, you know, I've, I've, I've recorded enough synchronistic sorts of things to 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 be convinced that there's some kind of participation between the what we call the inner and the outer and you know i i, I would think too you know you know maybe it is the case if you if you, if you i mean but i think the magic stuff i think you you know you really sort of have to you know it's like that has to be what you want to do you know you sort of have to really focus on that and 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 do it and do it and do it and actually you know that that requires a great deal of will and determination i think Crowley was one of these characters who he would do that. He had that kind of obstinate, you know, um, I want to say almost autistic, but I don't mean that in a um, derogatory way, but this kind of fundamentally focused kind of, you know, uh, consciousness about these sorts of things that, you know, could very well, you know, generate, you know, but, you know, it happened around people like Jung too, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it happened around Jung, you know, there's, I mean, you know, so there's, there's others around Wolfgang Pauli, you know, he, he's that he wrote that book with Jung, Jung talks about synchronicity and, and, um, you know, he was famous because whenever he was around the experiments would go wrong or the test tubes would blow up or, you know, the, 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 the you know, the atom smasher would smash or something. So he, he unconsciously was somehow affecting the world around him. So. 
Uh, maybe that would explain why I've destroyed so many computers. <laughs> uh, now, looking forward into other uh, figures out there, is there anyone that you've wanted to write a biography on but haven't gotten the chance to yet? That's an interesting question. Um, there is someone that I thought there would be a good book about, but he's not an occult figure. He's someone in the history of uh, psychoanalysis, actually. There's a fellow named Otto, Otto Gross. And um, he was a Freudian, um, but he was also a tearaway. And uh, he was a drug addict. He was a cocaine and morphine user. He was also an advocate of free love and a kind of social revolutionary. And he was around um, early 20th century. And he was um, part of the scene in Switzerland in a town called Ascona, which is a, a real upmarket, um, you know, resort now. But back in the day, it was this bohemian kind of place. People like Bakunin, you know, went there. And and in the, in the late 19th century, there was a kind of uh, first attempt at setting up a commune by a bunch of theosophists. And then after that, this place called Monteverita was set up, it means the mountain of truth. And it was the first kind of off the grid, um, back to nature commune, and there was the health cure, and people like Rudolf Steiner went there, and Hermann Hesse, and Isidore Duncan, and Theodore Royce, who's this occultist who was involved with Crowley and the OTO, and a bunch of other people, and Fritz Hartmann, who was Blavatsky and all this others. But this guy Gross was there as well, and he was promoting this kind of revol. He, he was turning Freud's ideas into kind of a, a revolutionary idea before. Marcuse was doing that in the late 50s and 60s, like, you know, this kind of Frankfurt School mixture of Freud and, and Marx. But Gross was doing the sense of saying, you know, we, we have to take Freudian ideas out of out, out of the consulting room and out into society because we're all we're all subject to this neuroses and repression and all this kind of, you know. But he ended up um in a bad way. He he was found dead in the streets in berlin i think in the 30s or something like that but it's interesting because his father was his criminologist um i can't remember his first name but it's gross as well but and um the books he wrote about criminology conan doyle read and influenced um sherlock holmes but then also one of his students was franz kafka oh and oh. so like kafka's in the penal colony <laughs> all of this kind of Thing. And one of the things this guy, I think it's, I can't remember his name, the, the father's first name, but he was talking about pre-crime in advance of Philip K. Dick, the idea that you could sort of predict uh, what sorts of people would, you know, most likely, you know, commit these kinds of crimes and that. And he's the one who initially sent um, his son to Freud because he wanted Freud to cure him of of his you know drug addictions and his wild ideas about free love and all this kind of thing, and Freud didn't want to deal with him, so he sent him to <laughs> Jung. Oh my god! He sent god. him to Jung when when Jung was at the Bergotsli, um clinic in in Zurich um, when he was in you know still the Freudian and sort of Freud's bulldog as it were, and at the same time as he starts to analyze. Gross, Gross starts to analyze Jung. And it, the tables get turned. And this is around the same time as um, Jung was having this strange 
relationship with Sabina Spielrein. I don't know if you know uh, a dangerous method. That was the film, um, the Cronenberg film. Yep. Yep. I know it's talking came about out a few years ago and all that. Yeah. And so this is when, you know, she's, she's afraid as well. Russian, you know, you know, mad woman, but also brilliant. Who, who wants actually Jung to have a child with her and all this kind of thing. And, and Jung is being very, you know, buttoned down and, you know, he's, he's, he's a very, you know, very conservative, you know, straight, you know, Swiss and, um, gross in the, in the, in their exchange is the one who gets him to say, Oh, you're just, you know, you're just following society's norms and you need to like, you know, break out of that and get in touch with your instincts and all that. And he basically encourages him to have the affair with her. So any case, he's, he's a, he's a, it just strikes me as an interesting character that would make for a good story, but I, I don't know if we ever get around to doing it. Absolutely. That that would be a fascinating movie, which you just described there, let alone a book. I would be <laughs> I would be thrilled to read that. That yeah. is a wild life. Yeah. Now, I, I am curious, though. So uh, one trend that I've noticed, and this is obviously far from ubiquitous, a lot of the people uh, who end up rubbing shoulders in the esoteric occult world uh, end up having really bad endings. Uh, they, mm. they die poor. They die uh, drug addicts. Do you have any idea why that seems to happen? Um, well, you're not supposed to try to use your powers for your own, you know, your own um, advantage. Um, and that seems to be one sort of thing. But there does seem to be this kind of um, trajectory. And this is something I, Colin Wilson, who's a big influence on me, um, talked about in the various books he wrote about the occult and the figures in it, that there's a kind of early success. And then it's kind of downhill after that um so i don't know why that's the case i mean someone like blavatsky um she talked about the way of shame or the way of blame and there's a kind of the holy fool and you have to take on the calumny of you know that others will throw upon you and you know and you know and i guess you can you know christ was condemned and socrates was condemned and you know all that sort of thing. So you can kind of look at that. Uh, someone like Crowley, you know, it was his own fault. He was, you know, he was, um, sadly, if only he had used his powers for good instead of evil, you want to say, although he wasn't really evil, but he was completely obsessed with himself. And and um, he talked about true will. Basically, that meant just let me do whatever I want. <laughs> Don't get in the way. Uh, and if you do, more than likely, you'll be hurt. So this was a very, at the same time, I think he was brilliant in many ways. I, I think he had a lot of interesting ideas, but he was, you know, completely, you know, he was, he was, he was, he was a spoiled rich kid, basically, who was allowed to do whatever he wanted when he was growing up, even though his parents were, you know, repressive Plymouth brethren, you know, fundamentalists, the fundamentalists, born again people, but they, they actually gave him whatever he wanted. And so that's that's he felt okay. That's fine with me, and that, that you know the, that's how the world should be in general. And after that, he tried to you know maintain that kind of you know relationship, and it just didn't didn't work. And everyone around him suffered from that. So um, I don't know. There's all there's all you know. Again, yeah, I I, I don't know. Um, I you know I I find all these people you know fascinating. 
I don't know if I'd want to give them my phone number. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, fair. I, yeah. I, I very much agree with that sentiment. From everything I've been reading, I, I look at these people. These are fascinating people. I'd be terrified to be in a room with them. Yeah. Can you imagine Alistair Crowley drunk dialing you at 3 a.m.? Absolutely. <laughs> Darling boy. You don't know. You must let you know. Of course. You know. Yeah. It's kind of like you just don't. Alistair, don't I will give you know. my firstborn if you let me go to sleep. Yeah. Oh, I've I've got I've got lots of firstborns. I don't need those. I need. <laughs> I need money. <laughs> I'm getting no, no, a restraining no. order. I don't no, think no, you no, listen no, to that. No. All right. Well, thank you very much for that answer. Uh, moving into our last couple of questions here. So. In the modern day, there seems to be this deep desire on large portions of our society to leave things like the occult or paranormal esoteric in the rear view for the sake of enforcing strict rationalism. So Mm. the question is then, why do these topics matter? What do you think we stand to lose if we were to somehow excise the mystic impulse from our society? Well, you know, they've been they others have been trying to do that for a long time. You know, they've been trying to do that since. I don't know, since the 19th century, at least, if not, if not earlier than that. Uh, yeah, it does go back earlier than that. You know, I, I, you know, it's, um, you mentioned secret teachers. Um, a long you know, string of, of the, genocides. Uh, well, yeah, the kind of, the kind of character assassination against the hermetic occult, you know, tradition starts uh, in the in, um, early uh, 17th century. You know, when uh, a, a nascent science and church strangely join forces to sort of undermine any kind of belief and um, prestige or credibility in the hermetic tradition. Um, and uh, they, they don't they don't stay, you know, teammates for very long, but at that point they do. And one of the reasons for that is that the hermetic tradition was able, well, um, sort of claimed ground that the uh, the other two, you know, wanted to have completely. You know, it was it was both a spiritual tradition and a scientific tradition. Um, and I think this is remarkable things. And the reason it doesn't go away is that it's part of us. It isn't just a a, a body of bad ideas. It's it's uh, ideas that have emerged because of. Um, Put it bluntly, one half of our psyche that has been kind of marginalized and and put on the fringe for the last four centuries, and can't go into detail. But I, in Secret Teachers, I tie this into the argument that Ian McGilchrist makes in his book um, Master and His Emissary about the uh, he reboots the whole narrative about the two sides of the brain, and he says this, uh, basically he says it's not so much what they do, it's how they do it, and they do it very differently. And left brain's all about precision and accuracy and sort of repeatability and making everything very familiar because that's its job is to you know survey the world around us and enable us to maneuver through it. And the right brain is just open to experience um, and the, the, the immediacy of things, the istikite, as uh, my Eckhart said a long time ago. So I, I tend to say the right, the left brain takes care of business. And the right brain takes care of isness. I like um, that. You know, it, so, it, it's uh, <laughs> it's fascinating. Actually, since we encountered that idea in Secret Teachers, mm. uh, 
the whole idea of the left brain, right brain, the logical brain versus the holistic view of the universe, that has ended up cropping up in, I want to say, at least half of the discussions we've had about paranormal and esoteric topics. Oh, yeah. It is an incredibly useful framework through which to look at how we interface with these phenomenon. Yeah. And I, I think that whole hermetic tradition or the occult tradition or the whatever you want to call it, the ambiguous umbrella term is 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 a repository of the kind of knowledge and phenomena and the experiences that are associated with the, the right brain's way of being in the world. And that's why the other side of us defines it all nutty and and crazy. Uh, because it's actually there 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 is a kind of you know, real rivalry going on. And the left brain's ruthless. The re- left brain is ruthlessly determined to carry out its imperatives to, you know, because that's what it's geared to do. And the right doesn't do anything. It just is, which sounds old like hippie talk, but it is, it, it just is. Uh, and the left brain's always doing and doing, and doing, and doing. But unfortunately, or fortunately, it's the left brain that has to do the work to, to recognize, you know, that it's, it's, going overboard in, in in this manic state of you know constantly having to deal with things and and you know um in survival mode and in those rare moments when we relax through whatever mode that that does it you know that that's when the sheer beingness of things that the left brain tends to edit out most of the time comes through and i, I would say that's a gradient you know there's an immediacy of things that we immediate things around us that we feel suddenly they seem more they seem more interesting and significant. There's a gradient behind that that would lead into more inner experiences, or you know, perhaps into paranormal ones, or at least the openness for them to happen there. You know, and, and I, I'm not an advocate of going out of our way to have these sorts of things. That's why I'm 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 not a hunter. I'm a naturalist, so I, I don't try to hunt these things down, but I try to be there and see. Ooh, what, what's what's happening in the bush? You know, rather than uh, my trying to hunt something down particularly. Thank you for that answer. Um, So moving into our last question, this one is by far the easiest. What's next for Gary Lockman and where can people find your work? All right. Okay. Well, um, well, where they can find my work is at um, your local bookstore, maybe, or but uh, online, all all the uh, usual online, uh, uh, you know, uh, suppliers uh, at my website, uh, gary-lockman.com where you'll find links to my books and um, some articles and interviews and things like that sort of up. But the next thing happening is um, I, um, the next book coming out is a biography I've written of um, a fellow named Morris Nichol, who's uh, not that well known, but he started out as a Jungian back a hundred years ago, 1922. He was, he was Jung's lieutenant in, in England here. And he wrote the first book about um, Jungian psychology in English, a book called Dream Psychology. But then um, he attended a lecture by the Russian philosopher P.D. Uspensky, who um, is best known as a exponent of the esoteric doctrine of the enigmatic Armenian esoteric teacher G.I. Gorgiev. And uh, Nikol uh, jumped ship, he changed his allegiance and became a student of Uspensky. He spent a year at Gurdjieff's um, uh, Prairie in Fontainebleau, outside of Paris, came back, continued his work with Uspensky, and then from the 1930 on to uh, his death in 53, he taught he taught um, the Gurdjieff work in different sort of off the grid communities outside of London, here. So 
Um, I was asked to do it. I was commissioned to do it. So, um, yeah. So that's that's with my publisher, um, Inner Traditions, now. I, I look forward to getting a copy myself to add to the mound I have growing on my bookshelf. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so, so much for giving us your time tonight. This was fascinating and a lot of fun for us. We hope you had a good time as well. Uh, but yeah, I think we can give you back the rest of your evening. All right. Well, thank you very much. It was absolutely a pleasure. Thank you very much.